Hi, I'm Susanna, and this is The Susanna Gibbs Show. If you are a lover of words or love poetry and want to hear more of our Dallas Poet Laureate, Joaquin Ziwatanejo, his father, his writing process, and the full, complete, deep-dive version with some additional behind-the-scenes footage, then head over to our sponsors page, GibbAgencyDallas.com. You'll also find links to the poems mentioned in this podcast. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Susanna Gibb, owner of Gibb Insurance Services. Yes, I am the same person. With over 25 years of experience, we are your one-stop shop for all of your insurance needs. Home, auto, health, life, and business insurance, too. But because we rebranded two years ago, Google has us on page 10 of their search engine. And so any click to our webpage is a big help. Go to GibbAgencyDallas.com to learn more about our agency, get a quote, catch the additional footage, or drop us a line about this podcast. Thank you in advance. And now, on with the show. Well, thank you again for being here with me today. I'm so excited. I'm going to formally introduce you after we've been talking for 10 minutes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) My guest today is Joaquin Ziwatanejo, winner of the 2008 World Poetry Slam the 2009 World Cup Poetry Slam, and Dallas's first official Poet Laureate. You are the author of seven books with an eighth coming, right? It's yes. Correct, yeah. And funded, founded both Dallas Youth Poets to help young poets find their work. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here. So you are now six months into your first of two years as a Dallas Poet Laureate. Yeah. And you, I, I read that you were projected to be presenting poetry at... at schools and official meetings has that been what you've is that what you've been doing i know you've visited <laughs> the 30 libraries no it's yeah it's uh, yes i've been very busy i went from uh i think i went from a city not really knowing that i existed to a city that's uh sort of desperate to hang out with me and oh. it's lovely uh i keep saying yes to everything bobby lefebvre is a poet i know from denver colorado who's a U.S. poet, I was a Denver poet, state city poet laureate there, and he was been reading my exploits on social media, and he, and he sent me a private message, and he said, Joaquin, you have to start saying no. Oh. I, he said, I know you love Dallas, maybe more than I love Denver. He's like, you, you're so madly in love with your city, but you can't say yes to everything. Part of your placement as a Dallas poet laureate is to generate new work, is to write, is to have space to create, and you know, driving all over your city and performing at, 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 at corporate events is... Lovely, he said, but you can't do it every day because you got to write, you got to create. So I'm trying to, to remember that, but it's just hard to say no because uh, I think I think everybody's very excited for poetry and very excited for the position. And there, I think the city is grateful that I'm here, and I, I think I'm very grateful that the city has seen me and seen poetry in a way that it hasn't in a long time, and it's wonderful. I mean, it, I won the World Cup. I, I won the you know the World Championship in the States and the World Cup in you know in Europe and. Like I, I did a tour of Germany and they had like a parade in my honor in like Regensburg and like and like that like in Dallas no one knew. <laughs> yeah. like, so, uh, but it, but poetry is uh, it's a different world in Germany. You know, is yeah. is this job job? Is it a job? I think it's, it a, it's it's I think more more than anything it's just an honor. An honor. Yeah, yeah. Is it what you thought it would be when you they were like, congratulations, you're Dallas's poet laureate, and now you're six months. In yeah, I, I think it is. I think it. I think it is what I thought it was going to be. But I think in a, in a way, I'm, I'm I'm trying to turn it into something that maybe they didn't think it was going to be. Like I, I'm trying to make it very hands on and very uh, 
I, w- I want the Dallas Poet Laureate to be very connected to the city, and I want the city to be very connected to the Dallas Poet Laureate. I don't know that that they, or maybe even I, thought it would be as intense as it has been. But yeah, I know, I, I know, I know, Laureate. Like there are there are laureates all over the country and cities and states and whatnot. That really, it's just more of just a ti- an honorary title, and it you know it doesn't really you don't really do anything. You know, you're not really asked to do anything, even though you're that city or that state's laureate. But I didn't want that to be the case for Dallas. I wanted I wanted there there to be a a very tangible connection between the city and the city's laureate. So, well, it's so lovely that you have this love for Dallas, and I can feel it. I can see it. And I love that you have it because I feel like Dallas needs that ambassador. I went to this meeting and this real estate person basically was, she's representing homes to people coming in and bashing Dallas in the process. Mm. Well, we don't have mountains. We don't have this. And I was like, no, we have so much cool stuff. We have so much cool people. We need to talk about it. So Absolutely. I love that you are so passionate about it. Have you met other I mean, now that you are the poet laureate, is are you in like a poet laureate club, basically, with all the other cities? <laughs> no, I, I was lovely enough to uh, when it all happened. Uh, I mean, the the morning news and and D magazine and and the city made such a you know a big harumph about it that it just it got out and and so many poets from all over the country who are their city's poet laureate or their state's poet laureate reached out to me and congratulated me and, and created dialogue and discourse. Some of them I knew, some of them, some of them I didn't, which was lovely. But I, I, I will tell you this, m- most of the ones who reached out to me to create this dialogue with me told me uh, point blank, like they could not believe what Dallas had done mm. for, th- for this position. Because like they said, they said there, there are state poet laureates who don't have an office in their central library you know of the state's capital and, and don't have an honorarium given to them a stipend and and so, so yeah so uh dallas went went all in and i'm so grateful that they did uh for me but also for uh the the next uh dallas poet laureate in perpetuity i think it's an exciting time to be in dallas dallas is having a artistic rejuvenation yeah or growth maybe not yeah. rejuvenation but spiritual birth in a way absolutely when I was a, when I was a Mocoso, like the arts district that is now our art, like it, it was it was non-existent. I mean, like, and look what's happened in in forty years. I mean, I, I think our arts district is it's among the the most astonishing in the country. You know, I agree. It's, it's incredible. It's incredible. Do you think these two years will be one of those things that you don't even comprehend until it's over? I think so. I do. I just do. ride the wave. Yeah. That's a wonderful way of putting it. My, my, my former department chair, I was a public high school English teacher for, for years, and my former department chair, Miss Madison, when I stepped away from teaching, she said to me, you're on a wave. Mm-hmm. She said, just ride it, you know, because you never know when it's going to come crashing back down to earth. I knew when I was, gosh, in second grade that I wanted to be an actor. Mm-hmm. Did you always know that you wanted to be a poet? Yes. I mean, that wasn't the original dream. The original dream was I was going to win uh, La Copa del Mundo. I was going to win the World Cup. <laughs> in soccer, yeah, yes, in football, yes. But um, you know, I, my tío Salestino, my tío Tino took me to my first season of semi-professional soccer when I was like age six, or I was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, he pulled me aside at the end of the season. He was like, "Mule, do you still want to be a professional soccer player when you grow up?" And I was like, "Uh huh." Mm-hmm. He said, "I got." You know, he said, "He said, ¿Qué lo dice eso con todo respeto y afecto, pero." And my uncle said, "I mean this with all due respect and affection, but." He was about to hurt your feelings in Spanish. <laughs> that's when he told me, you suck. You are horrible at soccer. You know, but you've been making me take you that stupid Lakewood library for years. 
He's like, I'm a grown man. I've never read a book in my life. He said, you, you know, maybe it's words for you. Maybe words will be your way out of the barrio. Maybe words will be your way back in to save us all. He said that to me. I remember that. I wrote it down. I just, I've been journaling since I was like seven. And uh, he said, maybe you, maybe your words will be your way, way back in to save us all. Save it. Like I carried that weight with me for my whole life to save yeah. us all. I remember walking on Yeti Sumitakalo just like pointing at people and saying aloud, I'm going to save you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to save you. Oh my gosh. Yeah. When you think back to that time in the supermercado, do you ever think, like I have conversations with my younger selves and I'm like, listen. It's going to be a little bit different than what you thought. <laughs> yeah. Did, what does your younger self think of all the success that you've had? <laughs> yeah, no, I, uh, I'm not sure what he thinks. I, I, I sometimes feel this real sense of guilt that, that, I, that, that, that I made it out. You know, and a lot of the mocosos, a lot of the kids I used to run with didn't. Um, a lot of the people that I, I love, loved, are no longer with us. Like, I think, like, my abuelo, my grandfather who raised me when my mother could not, my father would not. Like, if he was still alive today, oh, my gosh. Electric truck, mm. biggest house in Preston Hollow, the life he'd have, you know, because I'd give it to him. I'd make it so. That's what I do. I'd, I'd, I'd get things done. How and, old was uh, he? How old were you when he passed? I was a teenager. He passed when I was 14. So so I had him through my formative years, and then uh, I lost him, you know, at the beginning of my, my teenage years. What but, would he what would he think now? You know, my wife, my partner tells me all the time, like, you know, when something happens, a little bit, a little bit of light comes into our lives. And your grandfather would be so proud of you in this living, breathing moment. I really hope that he would. I think, I think that he, I think that he would. And I think that he is. Uh, I, you know, I've been, I love, I love, I love the young generation so much. I, I love being around college students and high school students for my work. Because they invented woke, I love that. <laughs> I love, I love the realm of woke so much. I mean, I've, I've been like flirting with the idea of like making my pronouns they, and uh, part of it is just you know, you know, what is gender anyway? But part of it is like I feel like I'm carrying spirits sometimes with mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. Like I, sometimes I very like I'll I'll feel my grandfather like right there with me, like in that moment. And there's more than one of us, you know on that stage or in that poem or my Theo Theono's with me. So like, I, I feel like sometimes I feel like I'm a part of this collective we that's moving through this journey that I'm taking and they're with me and uh, they're accomplishing it all too. So sometimes I feel like a they more than a he. Going back through a lot of your, your poems and, and your talks, you talk a lot about your family. Mm. Um, and I have to say, I loved I loved rereading all of your poetry because I read your poetry initially when you became the poet laureate, and then I reread and rewatched so much prepping for this interview, which is kind of like sanctioned stalking, which is really fun. Um, final exam for my father, mm. great example. Yeah. Oh, I get, I'm like, I have chills happening now <laughs> as I'm thinking about it, which was, you know, your your talk to your father when he left you. Yeah. Do you do you relive all that hurt every time you do that poem? Yeah, I do. <laughs> it's a hard, that's a tough one. It's a, it's a, I used to tell my students the ones that hurt the most are the ones that are the most important. And that one, I mean, like when I was, when I was crafting it, um, gosh, it was just like, it was like aching to come out of me. And it was aching as it was appearing on the page and it was aching during revision. I sometimes get really emotional while doing that poem, but I know that I have to do it because it's the one that so many young people come up to me afterwards and like, I'll do an hour reading now uh, and so many young people, whether they're high school students or college students or middle school students, will come to me and say, that's my poem. 
Oh. It's, like, it's like you were telling my story. And that's tragic to think that I'm connecting with so many young people all over the country uh, based off the fact that we are fatherless in a sense. But that connection, that shared humanity, it's, it's sort of like the magic and the beauty of, of poetry, allowing people who never would have been connect, connected in life to be connected for a moment. Yeah, I, you know, that started as a creative writing assignment in my high school English class. I would, you know, as, as students said to me, I'm so sick of tests. All we do is test. And that's when I got, I was like, okay, let's do this. Let's, let's write a poem in the form of a test, everybody, wow. to someone. And the advice I would give them every year was like, if you're going to do this, it better be someone you have some pretty serious questions for. And I would write it every year with them. I would write one. And, and I, like, I remember the first several I wrote was to the school board, <laughs> to uh, <laughs> the superintendent and, and to the principal and to, I think I wrote one to the Texas House of Representatives one time. Mm -hmm. But I realized, you know, many years after this initial idea of, of doing it with my creative writing class, when I, when I really sat down to write the poem and to try it, I remember, you know, I, I need to follow the advice I gave them, you know, and I need to choose someone I have some very serious questions for. And there was only one, there's only one answer, and that was my father. And originally, I think it was 33 questions long, mm. the first draft. And I was like, oh, this poem is way too long. You know, poems are, poems are so long sometimes. I love short poems, and I was like, I've got to cut this. And then I got it down to like 10 questions, and it was like, there needs to be more here. You know, I think I'm anchored on the stage for like 60 seconds in these questions. I want to be anchored for like two minutes. And I knew I needed to give it some more breath and give it some more silence and give it some more substance and... Yeah, that was a, that's a magical. I remember many, many years ago, because I wrote that poem so long ago now, a student came up to me at a university. I want to say I was at Clemson. And they said, uh, Joaquin, are you on Tumblr? And I was like, no, I'm sorry, I'm not. <laughs> and they said, uh, you know that poem has its own Tumblr verse. I said, what does that mean? And they said, it's the most shared poem on Tumblr. Do you have a relationship with your father? My last book, I don't have a copy with me, it's called Arsonist. And the quote that opens the book, Arsonist, uh, it reads, it's from a Facebook message request <laughs> that I got from someone. And uh, it's, tw it's 26 words. And it, and it reads, you don't know me, not really. And I hate to tell you like this, but my father, I mean, our father has died. And that's how I found out that the man who left my mother and me all those years ago had died from a stranger who shared half of my blood. You know, I just collapsed on my floor. I mean, I wept for my father for the first time in my life. Do you feel like you got robbed from making peace with him? Or did that, you... that whole book, that, that whole book, Arsonist, was peace. It was about peace and it was about love. This was my, this was my chance to, uh, to explore the possibility of loving my father. And uh, I remember when I, when I finished the book, I was, I was, it was originally titled Causes of Degradation because that's the first poem I wrote. But I immediately, there was so much fire imagery in that book that, I, I, that I, I wanted to change the title to Arsonist. And I was having conversations with people at my MFA program that I, need to, I think I need to change the title to Arsonist. And then it won the prize that it won. It won, it won the award. And it was going to become a book. It, when it won the prize, it was titled Causes of Degradation Still. And, and I, you know, I, I remember James Alunyota Stevens, this brilliant genius professor of mine during my MFA, said to me, Joaquin, I heard you're thinking of changing your title to Arsonist. I said, yeah, I really want to, but I want to make sure I'm doing the right thing. He said, you have to. He says, don't you see the word arsonist has the word son, S-O-N, <gasps> in the middle of it. He said, but that single word, arsonist, contains the sentence, our son is, mm -hmm. inside that single word. And when he said that to me, and I knew it had to be the title, and I called my publisher, and they were, they were already working on cover art. Oh, <laughs> and I was like, I'm, I'm changing my title. And uh, they were like, to what? And I said, arsonist. And they said, Why? And I told them what I just told you, and they were like, "Yep, damn it, 
It's, yeah. <laughs> they were like, it's got to be that. <laughs> well, the visual imagery, you know, an arsonist yeah. blowing yeah. up the relationship, yeah. like that's yeah. where I thought you were headed with it. Yeah. But now my I am my head <laughs> has exploded because that's really good. Now you also in a letter to John, yeah. which. Oh, I love that one so much. <laughs> Which that's the one that you won the World Cup Poetry that the, Slam. That was the one that won it in the final round for the United States of America that year. So powerful. And the crazy thing is I told my tío I was going to win the World Cup when I was in Mocosa. Yeah. And I won the World Cup in Paris. It was this, That competition in Europe is called the World Cup Poetry Slam Championship. And it's not the big one for football, for soccer. It's a little one for poetry. But I won it. I tell students all over the country, like, you know, I said I was going to win the World Cup and I did. And so did. dream big, you know, dream big. Did you, were you able to tell your tío? Uh, no, no, he wasn't with me then. I lost, I, yeah, I lost him um, two years after my grandfather passed. I lost him to cancer. But in that poem, you also reference the moon, your mom, mm -hmm. son, your dad, and you living in the eclipse. Yeah. Do you think that hurt that you had as a kid living there opened you up to be able to have voice as a poet, the emotional well, or do you think you had it the whole time? I think it's a little bit of both happening at the same time. I, I, my 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 abuelo would make me read to him at night. He would find things on the side of the road. You know, after he'd, after he'd stopped working in the fields picking cotton, he was a yard man here in Dallas, and there was not a lot of work to be found in Dallas proper at the time because there were so many yard companies doing what he was doing in in Dallas. So he would journey to these far off foreign suburbs, places like Plano, Texas, and Garland, Texas, places I didn't even know existed as a child, and he'd he'd find things on the side of the road and. Uh, one of his most sought after treasures was like boxes of books and mm. bring them home and store them in this little two tier shelf in the living room in the sala. And I'd have to read to him at night and I'd read in English and he'd critique my reading abilities in Spanish. When I would see his face contort, it was like, like into like a look of concern or, or a look of sadness or a look of joy. It was usually because I was reading a poem. There was this Norton anthology of poetry that found its way onto our shelf that he found on the side of the road in this box. And I think he loved them because they were short and they were accessible. You know, poems are very, they're very accessible because they're only a, a page in length. It's not like reading a novel, but they're also very song-like and fluid. And it got, when I would see his face contort, I was like, I mean, I remember being seven or eight and thinking to myself, this is what I want to do. Mm. I want to make people's faces contort <laughs> with words. And uh, I remember my Tio Celestino, you know, because I think he'd forgotten that he'd asked me what I wanted to be. And when I said I want to win the World Cup, it was about a year later, maybe seven or eight. And he said to me, after a few cold Budweiser beers, he said to me, Mio, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said to him, I looked him right in the face, I said, poet. I said that to him as a child. And he said to me, poet, <laughs> poet, man, how are you going to build a house made of poems? That's what he said to me. How are you going to build a house made of poems? Right now, like today, right now, our, our right now that you and I are sharing, I'm writing this quasi-autobiographical YA novel about a 14-year-old boy in the barrio who's being raised by his grandparents and his his drunk uncles. <laughs> and uh, he lives in a, in a neighborhood that's surrounded by gangs and poverty and depression and oppression and a city government that either doesn't see it or doesn't care. The only place that this boy in this book finds refuge is in a world of poetry, in a world of poems. He's, become a, he's becoming a street poet. And the title of this book I'm writing is called House Made of Poems. Mm. My Theo said, how are you going to build a house made of poems? And I'm writing a book called House Made of Poems because my Theo didn't write poems down. He just spoke them. You know? I was about to say, yeah. I wondered if, because he, the, the words that you use when you quote yeah. your Theo, your 
grandparents, they are they are poetry. Yeah, I was surrounded by poets. They just didn't write them. They they spoke them. But poetry started as an oral tradition centuries ago. It was it was spoken before it was written. Yeah, it was the only way stuff was passed down. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm honored to be a small part of this large tradition. It seems like you you give your grand grandparent grandfather or grandparents grandparents of- my, my abuelita Juanita is a huge influence in my life i lost her very young i was a i was probably seven when i lost her to a heart attack and uh but i still remember her i have so many vivid memories of her even at age five and six and seven before she passed she's such a large force in my life but they raised you yeah your your grandfather taught you what it is to be a man yeah a poet yeah do you have kids i do have two daughters then they're both grown and conquering the world now <laughs> grandkids so yet no, no, none. Yeah, none, none. Not yet. No. And their mom comes from Pleasant Grove, which is a tough neighborhood. And, you know, I come from old East Dallas, and uh, it was a tough neighborhood back then. And, and the, the girls both have this toughness in them that I think comes from Pleasant Grove and comes from East Dallas. It's sort of just in them, you know, without them even knowing that those places, you know, are out there. Somehow the Grove became cool. You can find Grove on a T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> From the Grove, yeah. You know? PG. I love. You know, when I was, I, I just did a, a thirty-day tour of uh, a thirty-hour tour of thirty libraries, and when I got to Pleasant Grove and got to the Pleasant Grove Branch Library, I love that their sign just reads PGBL. PGBL. And I told my, I told my partner that I was like, man, I was like, only in Pleasant Grove would they have a sign that says PGBL, and like that's the only sign. And she goes. Yeah, yeah. She goes, I'm from the Grove uh, in PG. We ain't got time to, to mess around with all the, <laughs> She goes, we ain't got time to mess around with all those syllables. She goes, it fits us. I love that. I wanted to ask you this question earlier, but we kind of shifted away because it was a back to the Denver Poet Laureate saying, hey, you need to write. Yeah. You need to write. Do you like, because it seems like you really like performing. <laughs> I do. Like yeah. sharing your poetry. Yeah. Which one do you like better? That's a, oh, that's a tough question. That's a really tough question. Or do they go hand in hand? You can't have one without the other. But because you perform your poetry, which is not yeah. always the way of poets. Many poets write without yeah. ever expecting to perform. But yours, especially watching your performances, you're so good at it. I think it's both happening at the same time. You know, before I got my MFA and before I really started, poetry was this very organic thing that just kind of just happened and maybe I don't know where it was coming from. It was just, I was channeling it from my uncles and my grandfather and the spirits that were all around me. But then in getting my MFA and thinking about the line and the breath and white space and silence inside the, the words and, and all the technical things that go along uh, with the, the essence of the poem, that excites me so much now. So I think there was a time in my life where I just looked forward to the stage more than anything. And now I find myself looking more looking forward to the page more than anything. But... I will say that like there's there's nothing like being on a stage and sharing a poem. There's nothing like it at all. It's electric. I think it's when I feel most alive. Mm, I remember fun. I had a poet say to me one time, uh, Joaquin, where'd you get your theater training from? Because I've never seen a poet do what you do on a stage. It's almost like you're a thespian, like you're you're you were born to act or just to be on stage and in some way. And I was like, I've never had any I said, you know, I said, I, I know where I got my theater training. I was a public high school English teacher. Mm. And I got to teach Romeo and Juliet at 8 a.m. on Monday to 14-year-olds. So I better be damn entertaining. Yes, you should. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm selling something they don't want to buy. You know, you mentioned the breath and Shakespeare and almost the similar sentences, which 
I love. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Shakespeare mm-hmm. and the breath. And I wondered that. Do you plan your breaths when oh. you're doing it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've gotten to where my breaks, where I'm, when I'm writing a poem on the on on the page, craft drafting a poem, I'm trying to be mindful of of line break and silence and space inside the poem, like as it rests on the page, because that equals breath. White space equals breath and silence. But yeah, I do think about that a lot. And if I feel like the breath needs to be longer, I'll go back to the page and revise based off the breath, because sometimes the page has to be changed for the for the for the for the recitation. Sometimes the the, the performance and the practicing of a poem in my office over and over and over and okay. over again leads to to revision on the page. One hundred two is the poem. Yeah, that I just I read it first, mm-hmm. and you talk about space, and I wasn't sure if because I was looking at it on the web. I was like, maybe this is, you know, the formatting is off. But hearing you talk now, it's not, is it? There's huge, huge breaks between the words. Yeah. um, This is from the new, this is from the new work. This is from, uh, from the book that I've, you know, that I've finished slash finishing Occupy Whiteness. And uh, I've been telling people about this new work. It's, it's not the most beautiful work I've ever done but it is the most important. Like these are the most important poems I've ever written in my life. They're not the most beautiful, they're not the most fluid, but they are the most important. And that space is intentional and that silence is intentional because I'm trying to make the reader experience what it is to be in a desert (laughs) surrounded by nothingness in 102 degree temperatures with very little water, you know? And this promise of El Norte, this, this thing that is the North, that is the United States of America. I want, I want them to experience that solitude and that silence and that thirst. Exper- experiencing the poem by just reading it was one one experience. And I immediately I was like, oh, I think I know exactly what's happening in this poem. But then when I listened to, there was the, um, the intro from the people, the poem, the poem a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you explained some of the story before you went into it. And it just, it made a whole new experience with the same piece of art. Yeah. Or maybe it's two pieces of art at maybe that time. It is. Maybe it is happening at the same time. What is Occupy Whiteness? I have an idea <laughs> now going into Yeah, uh, the new book is dedicated to my grandparents, uh, my abuelita Juanita and my, my, my abuelo, not as I knew them in life, as, as these elders, as, as my grandparents, but it's dedicated to them uh, when she was 17 and he was 18. I've been haunted and blessed by this image of my grandmother and my grandfather standing at the edge of the river, looking back at everything that they've left behind them, right? A language, a culture, a country, and waiting, waiting for night, night to come and entering that river. I was 17 once. I cannot imagine the courage it takes to do this and carrying only the things that they can press against their chest. And they, I, I know they probably waited for nightfall and I know they probably looked at each other and just to, 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 to be as silent as possible, maybe said one word to each other or just two words to each other. And they entered and they crossed. And they don't realize it because they're young and stupid and impossibly beautiful. But they carry me with them. And they carry every poem I will ever write with them across that river. You know, I am the proud grandson of immigrant field workers. I wanted this new book, Occupy Whiteness, to be for them, to capture their experience. And when I thought it was done, 
I gave it to Will Evans and the team at Deep Vellum Books. They contacted me, said, Joaquin, I, I love these poems, how they, you sort of uh, are, are creating in a way this new thing that you're calling this hybrid erasure. He's like, but wouldn't it be cool if this book explored the concept of, of hybridity even more and was even more of a hybrid in and of itself, meaning that there's this poetry manuscript inside this book, but there are also these essays that exist inside the book as well that aren't that are connected to the poems in one way, but also disconnected from them in another way. And as soon as they said this to me, I was like, yes, <laughs> like, yes. And Will, who's <laughs> such a beautiful man, said to me, it's your book. Let's make the book you want to make. You know, I was like, I don't care how, how thick it is. We'll find the money. We'll get it done. So it has been such a joy <laughs> to be a part of this new Deep Vellum uh, team that's uh, done such great things over the last 12 years in Dallas. I want you to read one of your poems. And while Will in my uh, want list to come in and interview, <laughs> yes. he was actually on the list. But then when I was stalking you for this interview, I saw that you how you were involved with him. And I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> he's totally coming on now. <laughs> Absolutely. So I'm going to read um, I'm going to read something that's going to find it's, it's it. This has found its way into the, the new manuscript, Occupy Whiteness, as well. And this is this is one of these sort of like prose pieces that. That is not, you know, it's not a poem, but uh, it's going to amplify some of the things that are happening in some of the poems. And I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be uh, acknowledging these things in, in the contents. The only thing that will appear in the contents are the poems. So there are going to be so many pages in the book that are undocumented inside the book. Undocumented. Interesting. Um, there are so many people in this country who are undocumented, and they're they're a part of this place. They're very much a part of this country, and yet still, some people see them as as outsiders not belonging. So there are these pages that are going to be in the book that are going to be these sort of outsiders that I think some of the readers might see as not belonging in this collection, but very much belong, you know. Okay. So this is called, uh, this is called Boy Made of Dust on the life and death of Adam Toledo. On March 29th, shortly before 3 a.m., Adam Toledo was shot and killed by a white police officer. Adam was running from the police officer at the time of the shooting, was carrying a gun in his right hand. He ditched the gun behind a wooden fence, turned with his arms raised upright in the air, a submissive position, and was shot in the chest by a Chicago police officer. He died moments later at the scene. Adam was 13 years old. All true. The summer of 1984, I was 13 years old. On a makeshift football field formed with four stolen City of Dallas orange cones and a gridiron that was one-third dirt and two-thirds dream, we played Steve and his crew, the Northside homies, in a game of nine-on-nine tackle football. They were older than we were. They were faster and stronger. They outnumbered us and actually subbed in players from time to time. There were nine of us. I was the smallest and the weakest. But we had all been playing street football together since we were mocosos. We had developed complicated plays drawn in the dirt. In one play, I was Tony Hill running a slant. In another, I was Drew Pearson running a button hook. In every play, Jesus Santos was Roger Stahlbach dropping back to throw a spiral as sacred as his name. We beat them. Not by much but enough to piss them off something fierce. The fight started when Steve, who was the biggest Mexican I'd ever seen in my entire life, jumped Gustavo, our leader. Steve's best, best friend, whose name I can't remember, jumped in to make it two-on-one. In, in an instant, Manny turned to me and shouted, Joaquin, go get Gustavo and Jorge's brothers. I ran the three blocks back to Gustavo and Jorge's house. I didn't run through the streets, but as the crow flies cutting through yards and jumping chain-link fences to make good time, Gustavo and Jorge's older brothers were always in and out of the pen, so I didn't know who I would find. As I approached their house, out of breath, I ran around back and there, working on an old 1976 Buick Regal, was one of their brothers and Tori, a vato loco who had just gotten out of the Marines and at the time had only three passions in life, lifting weights, boxing, and smoking mota. 
Between rapid and short breaths, I muttered, Steve and his crew jumped. Gustavo, the dirt field behind Bonham Elementary. They told, they told me to get in the back seat. I did as I was told. They slammed the hood shut and jumped in and we sped off. It must have taken us less than 90 seconds to get there. On the way, Tori pulled a snub-nosed 38 Special out of the glove box, flipped the cylinder open to see if it was loaded. It was. We drove over the curb across the basketball blacktop, at one point driving directly through an old set of swings onto the dirt field. Everything seemed to be simultaneously moving in slow motion and at breakneck speed like we were in some low-budget Michael Bay movie, only this was real. Gustavo was on the ground taking a beating from Steve and some other guy who was the second biggest Mexican I'd ever seen in my life. All of our crew were either being held back by multiple members of their crew or engaged in fights with two or more of them. Manny, who had never backed down in a fight from a fight in his life, was having trouble holding his own. But Jesus had one foot on one guy's neck while he punched another guy he had in a headlock into submission. I jumped out of the car. A gordo, I didn't see at all, punched me directly in the mouth. I fell back and just as I was, he was about to kick me, the shots rang out. Gustavo's brother had taken the gun from Tori and fired it in the air four times. Every one of their crew scattered, but Steve just froze. Tori and Gustavo's brother rushed him. Tori held his arms behind his back while Gustavo's brother pistol whipped him. Steve's face was covered in blood. As he crawled away, Gustavo picked himself up from the beating he had taken and ran up on Steve and kicked him in the ribs for good measure. Then the sirens rang out. Before I knew it, there were two DPD squad cars at the edge of the park right where Vickery meets Henderson Ave. We all ran. Gustavo's brother handed Manny the gun. He and Tori jumped back in the Buick and were gone. One squad car trailed after them. The two other officers got out in pursuit on foot. We all spread out, but Manny and I ran together. As we ran, Manny said to me, I can't fuck with Juvie again. Take this, and he handed me the gun. As we turned into the alley that paralleled Bonita Boulevard, we heard the officers shout for us to stop. This only made us run with more veracity. I was 13 years old, running from a white cop with a blood-covered, loaded gun in my hand. All true. The alley meandered to the left and I tossed the gun in a pile of garbage that was slowly being overtaken by a cluster of sunflowers. Months later, we would walk past those same sunflowers and Manny would say to me, it's funny how those things grow best in muck and filth. He was right. They did. So did we. The cop was gaining on us. The alley was a dead end. Just ahead of us was a brick wall that on first glance appeared to have no footing. Manny, who was running about 10 feet ahead of me, had to have been one half acrobat on his mother's side, one half leopard on his father's side. He hit that wall and stride with his right foot and lunged for the top of the wall in an instant. He was over it and gone. I could feel the cop right behind me. Then I felt his fist crumple the back of my windbreaker. I let both arms flail behind me and ran right out of my jaqueta. I followed Manny's lead and in an instant I was over the brick wall as well. I landed wrong on my left ankle. I limped for days, telling my abuelo I heard it playing soccer. It always hurt when I lied to him even if it was a lie to protect his feelings. I was 13 years old. I was not killed that day. I did not deserve to die that day. Had I been killed by that white police officer that day lying face down in the muck and mire, sunflowers swaying toward the light as they always want to do, you would not be reading this. My partner would have fell in love with someone else. My daughters would still look more like their mother, but not at all like me. The poem's unwritten. The pages blank, the students would have sat in front of another teacher who may or may not have loved teaching as much as I do. All true. Adam Toledo has an older cousin named Lupita Perez. Lupita has a seven-year-old daughter named Kayla. Every time Adam would go visit them, he would treat Kayla's dolls as though they were living, breathing babies and hold them and sing to them and be absolutely gentle to them. He did this to make Kayla laugh, which she did every time. Adam was skinny and funny 
and loving. He loved movies, especially ones with zombies in them. The guys I used to run with, Gustavo, Jorge, Mateo, Jesus, Jose, Red, Jojo, Manny, none of them were bad boys. They were lost boys who sometimes did bad things. Adam was not a bad boy. Adam may have been a lost boy who sometimes did bad things, but he was not formed from dust. He was formed from love and lust and flesh and bone and tears and hopes and fears and dreams and star stuff and, yes, even dust. He could have been a teacher or a soldier or a writer or a mechanic or an actor or a husband or a father or a dentist or a retiree or a bad golfer or a grandfather. He could have been your someday friend or mine. He could have been all those things and more, but he can't because he was killed that night in that alley. Adam was 13 years old. He did not deserve to die that night. I'd like to think in the moments before his death, he caught a glimpse of a sunflower growing in the muck and mire, leaning toward him. After all, sunflowers always lean toward the light. That was so good. Joaquin Watanejo, thank you. Thank you so much for saying yes to me. You're welcome. It's an honor. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you being here. Absolutely. Thank you for listening. As a reminder, go to GiveAgencyDallas.com to catch Joaquin's performance of Final Exam to My Father, Letter to John, and 102, as well as the full unedited version of this podcast. On the next episode of The Susanna Gibbs Show, we have Daniel Roby, CEO of Austin Street Shelter, who tirelessly works to help the homeless in Dallas. If you'd like to connect with us, please do so at GibAgencyDallas.com. Tell us what you thought, if you have any questions or comments. Thanks again, and we look forward to being with you again next week.